Welcome to Bourbon and Birds by Kentucky Fried Politics. It's Nick Storm. On Bourbon and Birds, we pour a bourbon and shoot the bird with candidates, lawmakers, lobbyists, consultants, and everyone in between, all in an effort to get down in the weeds and figure out the issues. This week's guest is Trey Watson, the former spokesperson for the Republican Party of Kentucky. Watson was recently called the most liberated man in Kentucky politics. He speaks his truth, and we get into the issues talking about the media, the special session, and the three upcoming special elections. Trey, thanks so much for joining me today. Where are the ferns? I thought this was between two ferns. <laughs> well, we do have a cactus. Oh. Between the cactus and the, and the tree. Nah, uh, I, I guess it works. Yeah. Well, I thanks for joining me on Bourbon and Birds. Yeah, man. Uh, drinking some fighting cock today. <laughs> Mm. I really like this stuff. It's a, it's the, it's got a very ugly label, <laughs> but for for what's inside, I think this is from Heaven Hill. It's a uh, it's a decent decent bourbon. Are we allowed to drink that right now? Uh, I mean, I am. I don't know if you are. I'm gonna do whatever I want. You cross cross crossing the picket lines, man. <laughs> <laughs> this bottle was bought before. <laughs> you can see it's been well enjoyed at this point. Um, you know that. You bring that up. That's kind of an, an interesting uh, piece happening right now. I saw Charles Booker put out a statement in favor of, uh, uh, you know, Heaven Hill do the right thing, so in favor of the unions there, which, you know, no surprise. Yeah. <clears throat> Democrat telling, uh, <laughs> you, you know, union folks that, that I've got your back. Uh, but, but really, outside of that, I've not heard, you know, I've not heard a ton on what's going on over at Heaven Hill these days. I've seen some tweets from, like, the, you know, Kentucky 120, now AFT people, just kind of union solidarity stuff. But, yeah, yeah I mean, I've, I've only seen it in the in the Democrat Twitterverse. Right, right. And it's, you know, I've got, uh, you know, I've got friends who are in unions and whatnot. It's interesting to catch up with them now because of how small the union space has grown or, or shrunk uh, in the last 10 years. Oh, and it's interesting because, you know, they're, I think Trump, especially in the, with his form of populism and, the shift of the Democratic Party away from you know anything even resembling even moderate social uh, position on social issues, you know Trump bought a lot of those people in the party. I think unions are in a weird spot because the union leadership may still be Democratic, but man, a lot of their membership ain't. It is fascinating. You know, you bring up a really interesting point. I was talking to uh, uh, a Republican, uh, sort of in the Trump vein, turned independent in this fifty-first uh, House district. He's uh, uh, running for state house for Van Carney seat. Yeah. And, He's running as an independent. He said, you know, I don't want to be beholden to a party, but you know, our, our place in Darren Taylor County is you know, very uh, rural. We're very uh, worker-centric, and I'm for, the, I'm for the workers. I'm for the small man, small business-minded folks. And it's interesting that, you know, the political spectrum used to be that would be Democrats, bread, yeah. bread and butter. Yeah, you just, you've seen this, this wave of populism move into the Republican Party, and it's you know, that's the Democrat Party had a lot of their own internal feuds going on. But mm-hmm. that, that's eventually that's going to be the big feud inside the Republican Party is going to be the traditional the traditional conservatives, free market, international trade. You know, that that vein of Republican versus this strain of populism that's come in with with Trump. You know, I, I think it's good for the party. It, it's it's, uh, you know, at least it's a policy discussion is better than other fights that we're having. <laughs> but but it's you know, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that one plays out. So on that point, I, and I'm. I wanted to catch up with you on, on uh, the 
special session ended, uh, three-day session ended last week. Uh, it does seem like Republicans have a point in time here where you know they can get things done in Kentucky, but it's Republicans that are holding up the agenda and trying to figure out what a Kentucky Republican looks like these days, where Trump is still very popular, um, but you know you sort of have these. Uh, really outside ideologies that are that are inside Republican Party. What what did you make of this special session? And you know, did you see uh, Republicans able to do sort of what they needed to do and wanted to do, or were they sort of hamstrung by by some of the others in the party? I think they were able to overcome uh, a lot of the uh, kind of gnashing of teeth people who who are make, make no mistake are on the wings. You know, if you actually watched the session. Um, not follow the news and not even really watch the, the floor debates because the floor debates are, you know, the, the, when it comes to the floor, the, the, it's fait complete. The bill's done. Yeah. It's not changing. It's not being amended. It's, and it's passing. Yeah, they're for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the real, if you want to watch it, the, the real nuts and bolts and, and, and the discussions are in committee. And I thought, you know, outside of, with the exception of a couple of, of spots, um, Danny Bentley with some odd comments about vaccines, um, Adrian Southworth, uh, and a couple of instances with a couple, couple of other House members. Throw out maybe four or five House members and, and then the one state senator. I, I thought not only were the discussions uh, good, they were, they were bipartisan. I mm-hmm. felt like there were Democrats and Republicans on both sides of discussions that, that, that were being had. And I think the bills that passed were largely what they came in wanting to do. Uh, you know, I, I think they... There was some gnashing of teeth, certainly, uh, I think, maybe behind the scenes on some moves that were, that were pulled that were purely political stunts. Yeah. But, you know, policy-wise, it didn't affect what they were, what they were trying to do. It's, it's interesting, though, Trey, you know, watching some of these committee meetings. And uh, granted, I wasn't able to watch as many as I would have liked to. But uh, <clears throat> specifically, I was watching more on the Senate side. And you had people like uh, Dr. and Senator Ralph Alvarado, uh, who, you know, to Stiver's bill, which was, uh, I think, SB2, um, could be mistaken on that one, but essentially said, uh, hey, this bill doesn't do as much as I would have liked it to have done. And, uh, you know, we had an opportunity here to be bold. We had an opportunity to enact something pretty large. And, you know, while, uh, you know, while this doesn't accomplish that, I'm still going to vote for it, is essentially what he's saying. So, you know, better than nothing, I think, was the quote from him and, and several others in committee on some of the some of the bills coming through. Um, but, I, you know, like, does that does that make it make a difference to people at the end of the day? See that, you know, Republicans passed legislation or did anybody pay attention to what? Well, first of all, I don't think anybody but nerds like you and I pay attention to the committee <laughs> to the committee meetings. Yeah. But you know, I, but I think it, it's I think it's a good thing because it shows that the party's not this monolithic thought process. You know, it's it's always been said that the Republican Party was the big tent party, and mm-hmm. I think you saw it play out that you had Republicans on all sides of these issues. Um, some happy because they felt like it was right in the right place. A lot that were happy it didn't go far enough. A lot that were happy that thought that stuff went too far. Um, you know, so I, I think at the end of the day, what you saw was compromised legislation where leadership uh, looked at looked at the caucuses that they had to that they had to get legislation passed through and said, all right, you know, what what can we roll as a consensus piece of legislation here that um, would also have public buy in? Because, you know, we are talking about a, a pandemic here. Yeah. So you've also got to enact legislation that's going to have public buy in because the, at the end of the day, unless the public is, uh, you know, going along with this stuff, getting and getting vaccinated. 
uh, you know, ask, wearing masks when asked to, and all the other things that are that are expected of us to be kind of good citizens of the world at this, you know, at this point in history. You know, the public's opinion is important too, and so I think leadership did a good job of finding a sweet spot uh, among the caucus, and, and you know, also trying to figure out where the public tolerance is. You mentioned the news and the headlines. Um, sticking with the, the special session theme and uh, specifically over masks, you saw some uh, some news articles uh, only sort of referencing masking and, yeah. you know, and Republicans as anti-maskers. Um, you and I have talked about this recently uh, off camera. Uh, you know, what, what's your takeaway on that? I mean, is that the Republican agenda to, to do no, away with masks? You know, the, the media is, very, is being very insincere with Republican cases for a lot of stuff. You know, I got mad. There's a New York Times article, I think, on Monday maybe, and actually, actually tweeted at the writer, not that it would do any good, but um, with, with, a, with a similar issue where uh, she was saying that Republicans in states that require other vaccines are protesting against this federal vaccine mandate. The issue is, as we have done throughout the process, Republicans' problem has, always, has never been with what needs to be done for public health, what needs to be done for the public good. It's the process, because process at the end of the day matters, because that's the only thing that, that pr process protects us from despotism. And so, you know, process is important, and a lot of Republicans felt like uh, the mask mandate at a statewide level was trying to kill a fly with, with, a, with a hammer. And that, you know, we can do this more strategically, we can do it better uh, with people who are local and who are on the ground or seeing the numbers, because you know, when you see the state numbers, they lag the local numbers by a couple of days. So the people who are local are gonna be getting better information from the local health department. Um, you know, so they, they can make decisions better, be more nimble. And you know, that's what Republicans didn't want mask mandates to go away. And I think when you look, uh, we're up to about 80% plus of school districts have, uh, have instituted uh, mask mandates on, at a local level, which that's the way it should have always worked, and it's the way it's working now. So, so I think here's the problem. One, you've got uh, maybe disingenuous uh, reporters or perhaps editors who are trying to oversimplify something. Or well, also, don't, don't forget, they're, they're in business. For sure. they're, they're trying to sell papers, and everybody got together and had a good meeting and agreed on stuff doesn't sell, doesn't sell papers, doesn't get clicks. They need a sensational headline. And of course, and, and on top of that, here's what's different, right? Yeah. Like what's, what is news, right? Like, car goes down the street every day, I'm not going to report that there's a car going down the street. Yeah. Car wrecks into the building, all of a sudden that's news because it doesn't happen every day, right? Uh, it's the uh, Jack Brammer. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I did a thing with him years ago and uh, talking to some college kids, and, and he said, look, airplanes, they, they land every day. I'm not going to go out and report on that. I, call, I called a TV station one time trying to pitch them a story for a client. And they said, listen, I got to be honest with you, and, unless there's a fire or a corpse, we're not coming. Wow. wow. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there is something wrong there on the, on the local side for, for that perspective, right? But, um, you know, beyond that, we know, we know sort of the why, right, and, and why papers report the way they do. And also that it's not always the reporter. Sometimes it's an editor that oversimplifies. Sometimes, it, sometimes just, it, it. it's literally just a copy editor, whoever's putting True. the headline on. Truly. Truly, so, so many reporters don't even write their own uh, write their own headlines. But uh, you know, sort of beyond that, I think when you talk specifically about uh, Republicans and masking, it becomes complicated because not all Republicans believe the same thing, there, even though Republicans yeah. took large action in that direction. I think there are some that yes, there are some that that are outside the mainstream. And when you look when you look at, and this this is something I've cautioned all Republicans on. Any candidate that I've talked to, elected officials, potential candidates is 
this stuff pulls really well. With the, with the with the lone exception of the masking of two to five year olds, mm -hmm. the mask mandates poll extremely well. Vaccine mandates poll fairly well, uh, depending on they poll better on a, as, from coming from the state than they do on a federal level. Um, they poll even better from from, from allowing employers to mandate. Uh, you know this stuff. You hear a lot about it, and you hear uh, a lot of complaining and groaning on social media and in the press. But at the end of the day, they, again, like we talked about, the press is. The, to get clicks, they have to, they have to portray the far the far wing position, the far left and the far right. And the fact is, the middle like 70, 75 percent of the country uh, understands the pandemic, understands what needs to be done. So mm -hmm. you know, the vast majority of Republicans support masks, and there certainly are, are some that don't for a variety of reasons. Um, but I, I think by and large, if you're going to talk Republican Party as a, as a as a body, you know, you, ha you have to talk majority opinion and majority opinion is going to be we had a problem with with process, not policy. And we fixed that during session. Yeah. So got two essential trains of thought going on. At the same time. <laughs> One, the journalism strain and, uh, and also a, a masking conversation and a, and a COVID conversation. And well, here, there's the sad part, though, Nick, is they they unnecessarily have become combined right. because the media drives the conversation so much. So many people get their news through that through that prism of, of, of the press, whichever, whatever media you want to call it and follow, whether it's online, print, uh, TV, whatever, you know, that you, you almost can't separate the two because it's, they're not always portrayed the same. And there's different, it's, it's, it's such a mess trying to figure out where, where, where the truth lies. Well, I want to come back to the COVID conversation. So you pushed us towards the journalism <laughs> conversation here and you know, like, look, journalism, journalism has a problem, right? And the, and the problem is, in the early days of the internet, journalism online was given away for free. Yes. And then Facebook came along. Uh, as advertisers figured out, you could spend money with local websites and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. You can now buy every news station by just buying one of the social media components and you know, picking up on the shares of, of information that way. And so, you know, take it on to a, a, a more broad scale. The national news media has figured out that if you pick a side and you deliver news to either side, you can own market share and people really want to reinforce what it is that they believe. I think you get less of that at the local level. Now, I do think local's better, but the problem is, is that local, you know, I, I always get on to people that, you know, the president, you probably know the vice president, 75, 80% chance you know both your senators, probably seven, about the same chance to you know your governor. Do you know who your city council person is? Do you know who your mayor is? No, and it's the same thing with media is right. they pay attention to the shiny lights. And, you know, I, I think, Nick, I, I don't know, people talk about this partisan divide in the country, and I don't know that we're ever going to be able to move on and reunite the country until the press, and I'm, I'm specifically talking about uh, your national uh, mm -hmm. print media like the Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, those ones, and then your, especially your, your TV media, until they uh, own up to and accept their culpability in the creation of Trump. I mean, Trump, Trump didn't, he almost didn't spend a dime right. the first, you know, right. th through Super Tuesday because yeah. he got, he, the, he was great for ratings. So every MS, MSNBC, uh, CNN, Fox, they all wanted him on because he was great for ratings. They helped create this beast and then they further sensationalized it because it's great for ratings and they figured it's also great for ratings when you have on far left yelling at far right you know, having on somebody who's center right versus center left having a substantive policy conversation, that doesn't get, get clicks. No. And so until, until the press owns up to and accepts culpability, which they, they tooth and nail are fighting the acceptance of that. 
I, and I talk to people in local, in local press all the time. You know, people, people remember me from my, t- my time at RPK and yeah. think, you know, I've, you know, what they don't know, and you know, and what any reporter will tell you is, I was always the most uh, open, accessible, and and would would be the most frank and honest with people behind the scenes, yeah. off the record. And you know, I talk to my friends that are still in, in the press, especially in print, and there's they're as fed up with it as I am. And they don't, you know, because it affects their work at the local level. Sure. Because if they if they write something that is honest and truthful, but it happens to beat up on one side, mm-hmm. all of a sudden people go nuts and they're biased. And no, they're just they they follow the story. Right. But we live in this prism where all media is biased because. All media, when people refer to that, is is the national level. It's just it's 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 causing terror for the local people, mm-hmm. and it also just we cannot move past that partisan divide until the national media accepts their culpability and everything in the in the divide that's that's that exists in the country right now. Sure, but I, and I agree. I think that I, I think you're spot on. I think the national media created Trump when they were probably majority of them trying to kill his president they've also created aoc they've created uh madison cawthorn and marjorie green taylor mm-hmm. and Ilian omar i mean it's it's, it's not a partisan thing it's no, it's for no. them it's about it's about money because well, those the sensational personalities equal cash to yeah. those outlets and so this is the point i want to make is that these are corporations at the end of the day these are for-profit entities and you know i don't think anybody's arguing to socialize media <laughs> or no. have government-run media but, you know, as long as there's corporate interests involved, you're going to have, you know, people trying to make a buck. And, and as such, it's going to be whatever gets us what the majority wants to see or is maybe the most divisive that gets the most people to come and complain about whatever it is. And that's not going to stop. And, and I, so I guess the, the challenge that I have is, uh, and for, for not just for you, but for everybody, how do we incentivize journalism that is that we want to see? I mean, I can sit down right now and I can write a very process-oriented story. I can tell you what's going on in any number of things, and I might get a couple hundred clicks. And I could turn around and I could write something uh, about somebody, and, and it might be a good government piece. I'll tell you what, it's going to reinforce somebody's belief system, yep. and I'll get a couple thousand clicks. Well, I, I mean, I think the problem is... There, there's two problems. One, again, the, the press refuses to admit any culpability, so that's problem one. They got to, they got to, the national media has to accept that. But problem two is we have to look at ourselves because, mm-hmm. you know, when, when when we run a campaign, people always complain about negative ads. There's a reason we run negative ads. We, you know, when you're working on limited funds with a, in a campaign, and you're we're not in the business of wasting money on fruitless efforts. Right. We've poll tested this stuff. We know what will move votes, and you know what moves votes. Negative ads. If you know people react to it, it's 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 become ingrained in our human nature to react to the negative and to react to the sensational. And so, you know, the press can do the press can go a long way by cleaning up their act. But at the end of the day, we as humans and as Americans have to be willing to tone ourselves down and to listen to more moderated discourse. And I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I have no idea how you do that one. But right, that, you know, right. that's, I mean. <clears throat> some, some somebody has to click on that in order for it to be to be incentivized right, which means right. that like you know so we people, need a culture shift yeah essentially but i mean it's that's tough to create good luck figuring that one out right <laughs> all right so at least until culture changes and we don't you know we aren't so reactionary all just time. replace the, yeah. the fluoride in the water with bourbon yeah it'll, it'll simmer everybody <laughs> down a little bit you know so here's like one last point on this and this was eye-opening for me pretty early on it was covering the 
you know, you have a sense of what the Nationals are doing and whatnot. And I won't, I won't give away reporter names or anything like that. But in 2014, the U.S. Senate race against Allison Lernigan Grimes and Senator Mitch McConnell uh, was the race that election year. It was essentially a presidential-level contest happening in Kentucky. Manny Rogers is a, a nationwide name now. He cut his teeth covering that race, went straight up to D.C. Exactly. So, <laughs> well, we, By the way, where, why, why aren't... I mean, Manny is up in D.C. What the hell's wrong with you, Nick? Well, <laughs> we can't all be Manny Rogers. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I, I'm very happy about that. I don't care. It's going to go to the national side. I'll say that now confidently. It's not a place that I want to be at. Uh, I love being in Kentucky. And I love reporting yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Anyway, so we had all these national reporters. Manny Rogers, we had, you know, uh, coming from Politico at the time. We had all these other reporters. And what was interesting to see was these reporters had picked their candidate. And so you had some pick Grimes, you had some, and I'm talking national, not, yeah. not local. Uh, you had some pick Grimes and you had some pick McConnell. And, you know, the McConnell reporters got fed McConnell stories from McConnell staff. You know, the Grimes people fed uh, Grimes, you know, Grimes stories to, to their other reporters. But the play was, and careers were made and, and, and lost on that election, because by picking your candidate, you also then, when those people went back to D.C., yep. had a built-in network. And so, you know, people that picked McConnell leveled up in, in the journalism side of things. And it was really interesting to see that game play out up close and just how shaded the reporting was in the... You know, at the same time that we were told, oh, this was objectivity. Um, and so, you know, for, for a lot of national reporters that want to move up in the ranks, there's a way to do it. It just isn't what's great for democracy. Well, and I think, you know, you've got, there's been loads of articles written on the kind of the current the newsroom at the New York Times where you've got this, like, all these kids coming out of journalism school who are, who are much more activist and believe that, you know, believe they've, they've got a voice mm-hmm. and they've got to not just report fact but use their voice versus reporters who are going to report and you know i don't and we have some i won't name names but we, you know, we have some activist journalists here in kentucky that you know they're they're fine reporters when they're working on something that's not in their activism wheelhouse but when they're active and they're in their activism wheelhouse it's hard to deal with them because they're they're not they're not going to give you a fair cut you know i always like working with people like like you i love working with tom loftus you know tom yeah. tom would call me literally once a week just say hey what's what's going on and I knew I would I wasn't gonna get uh, you know any, any favorable coverage out of him, but I was gonna get fair coverage. Right. You know, Deb Yetter, uh, I'm the the one I always point to people on is uh, uh, when I used to work with the payday lending people back before I, I went back into campaigns. You know, Deb was very anti payday until I, I worked with her for a long time and explained that you know there's no not necessarily any saints on any side of this issue, and you know she was. She was able. She was able to work with me in a, in a very fair, even manner. I mean, it's it's possible to do, but you've got a lot of younger journalists these days that believe they they've got a voice in a forum, yeah, and they've got to use it for 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 good in their definition of good. Sure. Well, and you know, at the end of the day, Trey, people are people are people, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, look, I, we can sit here and talk about how oh, I've never had a closely held belief in my life, and it's just not true. Yeah, it's just not true. But here's the difference in a professional versus somebody else is to say. I recognize I have uh, this belief, but how do I replace it with objectivity? How do I step back from that and, and have the ability within myself to say, okay, what are the sides, all the sides of this story, regardless of what I believe, and how do I fairly portray that? And I think, 
you know, I think there are people that are, are doing a good job at it. And, look, I, and I think you can, you can, your beliefs can help shape what you write about, but you've got to try to not let it shape how you write about them, I think. Yeah, yeah I think absolutely, sure. And, you know, the, I have this conversation with different reporters. I mean, I think that you need a little bit of not necessarily a core belief, but you need a little bit of like, you know, at least for me, I use sort of like a, a, an internal gut check of, you know, if something just sits with me in, in, in a weird way of like, oh, this just doesn't feel right. This doesn't, you know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's an incl- inclination for me to, to dig deeper. And what I might very well find is that, you know, there's nothing there. I can't tell you how many investigations I've done, how many stories that I had started that turned out not to be what I thought it was at the beginning. Yeah. I can also tell you the majority of the time when there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, so, you know, I kind of use that thing to, to move me into the fact-finding state. But you still have to find your facts. I've said for years, I'd rather have an elected official who, who is moral than someone who attempts to govern with their morals. You know, I'd right. rather have somebody right. who, who is gonna, who's going to vote for something that's against their personal morals, but they know it's the right thing to do for, for whatever body it is that they're, that they're representing in. And, I, you know, I want to know that it's going to keep them up at night. Right. But, but, but also, I also want to know that they're going to do, that they're willing to put their own moral compass aside and understand that despite my personal qualms, this is the right vote to take on this, on this issue or the right action to take on this issue. Like, you know, so I think morals are important, but you, you can't let them, you can't let them control you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I want to pivot back now <laughs> to COVID measures and, you know, really to understand special session, we got to back up a little bit uh, and go back to the regular session of 2021 when Republicans, the super majorities in the house and Senate passed legislation uh, to effectively say that we didn't intend for emergency orders coming from the governor to last 18 months. When the legislature first gave the governor emergency powers decades ago, it was uh, intended to be what we thought emergency at the time would be, which would be you know 15 days, 30 days. We can, yeah. you know, reasonable minds can differ on how long an emergency lasts. Uh, but the legislature decided they wanted to come back and say that, like, look, anything past 30 days. You can, you can issue emergency orders for 30 days, but anything past that is a, a legislative prerogative. And in the case of COVID, uh, a pandemic that we're now in the 18th month of, uh, that should have a check and a balance uh, from the legislature. But the question, Trey, is that a lot of these things aren't motivated by what's best for people. It's motivated by being reelected or, or, or uh, electing more of one party over another. Did Republicans bite off more than they could chew by taking on a pandemic that doesn't have uh, an easy answer to, to solve, or at least uh, not a, a politically uh, <laughs> a politically good one. I think I, there is an easy answer, but not a politically good one. I don't one. think so, because, you know, at the end of the day, the changes that they made during the regular session, you know, I, I always remind people that there was only seven states. Now you have, I think, 28 states that have year-round legislatures. Mm-hmm. So they, they have, you know, they, they can deal with it regardless. Uh, of the remaining states, there was only seven that didn't have a legislative check and balance on emergency powers. So by us instituting a legislative check on it, we, we weren't like, it gets portrayed in the media and Andy Bashir makes it seem like we are somehow like wandering off in, in, a, in a wilderness by ourselves. No, we, we joined the mainstream. We, we joined the majority of states in having a legislative check over uh, executive branch emergency powers. So 
regardless of yeah you know, sometimes it takes an emergency to to expose flaws in your in your in your system sure. and i think this was a flaw in our system i'd say the same thing if it was a republican governor and a democrat legislature um it was a flaw in our system that needed to be changed uh, because at the end of the day you saw things going on in 2020 and i mean when i'm getting calls from democrat local elect, local elected officials and democrat members of the legislature complaining to me about I can't get a message through to these guys. They're not listening to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have a problem. And so you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, Andy Bashir could have avoided a lot of this if he had opened the doors mm-hmm. more and been more collaborative. But at the end of the day, the Republican Party need, needed to do what, what the majority of the public wanted, which was we don't think that one man should have all of this power and be able to institute all this stuff with very little, very, very limited input from mm-hmm. people with boots on the ground. And, you know, I think that. It wasn't easy for Andy Bashir, and nobody should expect it's going to be easy for 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 the for the legislature either. But it's the right thing to do. It's it's good government. Yeah, well, you unintentionally spouted Kanye West lyrics. I just want to point that out. <laughs> no man should have all that power. Um, <laughs> look, though, we're already seeing the political side of this coming back, where. Uh, Bashir now, before even these laws are actually enacted, um, saying, you know, uh, child, you know, kids getting getting COVID, death rate, Republicans own this, right? Well, I I think Democrats have been, quite frankly, incredibly hateful and uh, unnecessarily uh, vicious and, 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 frankly, just hurting as much as they want to bitch complain about Republicans, you know, being partisan and, and creating this divide, that they're literally saying Republicans want want to see school children die, which is yeah. which is just it's sick. It's uh, Mary Lou Marzi on the floor. She had some very sick and disgusting floor speeches, perverted floor speeches. Like how you would how, how you could get up there and talk about your fellow members' legislature who you serve with uh, and and assign to them the motives that she was assigning. It's just, it's perverted. It's, it's like, you want to know why we've gotten where we've gotten? It's people like that talk, saying things like that in a public setting, um, in, in a position of authority. So, you know, I think that that's incredibly wrong. But there were, I mean, they're, they're hearing from their constituents. They're up there representing the people that they were elected to represent. And, you know, I, I talked to a lot, of, a lot of the legislature on a pretty, you know, frequent basis. And they, they were doing what they were set up there to do by the people that vote for them. This is not some sort of... Outside the mainstream, they're they're you know they're going cowboy up there, gone rogue. This is what the people they voted for were were asking for. And at the end of the day, unless you had the consent of the governed, you know they're not, they're not going to do. And that's I, I think that gets back to a lot of the problems of early on is that people people were told early on we will defeat COVID if we do this that and the other. Two things there. First of all, we're never going to defeat COVID. It's a coronavirus. How are we doing defeating the common cold? That's a coronavirus too. You know, we, we can pre- prevention and, uh, and and maintenance and dealing with it on a pop. That, that's that's all we can. That's all we can do. Yeah. At least for the time being. Now, vaccines can change the conversation a little bit, but right. we're we're not we're not going to defeat it because it's a coronavirus. It's right. not polio. It's not smallpox. But you know, people people believe that early on, and they got understandably angry when that didn't happen, and they became less compliant with orders. So unless you had the consent of the governed here. You can pass whatever law you want. If they're not, if they're not going to do it, are you going to start just mass arrests because of because they're not wearing masks or not getting vaccinated? So you know, having the legislature do what the people are asking them in this situation, they they know what the breaking point for their constituents mm-hmm. is, and you know we we need that right now. 
Here's what I think is interesting in all of this, and you, you, you got at it in your comments. I think that um, <clears throat> masks are, at least non-medical-grade masks, are largely ineffective, and you know some prevention is better than, than yeah. none. I'm not saying don't wear a mask, so don't you know don't get that confused. But the conversation here, if we want to really protect Kentuckians, is the vaccine conversation, and it seems to be lost. In the, in the shuffle here. I mean, uh, newspapers are, are way too happy to talk about masks here and masks there and, you know, like uh, personal freedoms and, okay, the, great, awesome. But what about the thing that's going to protect the majority of us at the end of the day is yeah. going to be inoculated against the virus the same way you protect people with the flu vaccine? And, and, and the people who are lagging in vaccination in this state are largely white rural conservatives. They ain't going to listen to any sure one or the other. At some point in time, that conversation was going to have to get handed over to Republican leaders anyways. Right. And the fact that Bashir had to have that wrested from his hands, but he was doing nothing with it. He was not, you know, Andy Bashir's his only outreach to those communities was to shame them daily in a, in a press conference. And that's not going to work. No, that's not going to work. So, you know, he long ago should have had a conversation with Republican leaders and said and, and engaged them on a larger level, given them more responsibility brought them into the conversation and try to figure out programs that would work to target these people. But he didn't. And honestly, I think it's because early on, I think what happens early on, and I'm talking like March or so last year when the, when the first shutdowns happened, when we thought, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve and all that, I think the Bashir people made a calculated political decision mm-hmm. that if we do this perfectly, we own it, it goes great, that's our, that's our path to re-election. I, yeah, I don't but think the, you're wrong. Then you get further down a road where you still get this mindset but you're you know you're all in on it and it's hard to pull it's hard to pull back out because that's that's your that's your strategy and i think that's what prevented them from from opening the door and allowing these other people in and i think he let it get worse because he didn't want to collaborate people because then he'd have to share credit uh, upon success sure I, like look I, we're a very republican state <clears throat> uh andy Bashir is governor because of how unelectable matt bevin was right yeah, accurate exactly and you know, he can take four years and he can find a core issue and he can save some lives and he can do a whole lot of good and and get reelected on the basis of saving life and being a leader a la uh, George W. Bush, right? We can have this argument now, you know, 20 years later, <laughs> like what he did. But, uh, you know, he can be essentially a wartime governor, right, in a, in a pandemic if he leads us through this crisis and we all come out. But even Bush brought Democrats in the conversation. Exactly. I'm like, look, he was wrong. Andy Bashir should have been standing up there with Republicans. He could have done both. He didn't, and we are where we're we're at today. But but to me, even if Bashir owns all of that, it's not stopping anybody else uh, from stepping forward and saying, "Go get vaccinated." Don't listen to the governor. Don't listen to to me. Don't listen to whomever. I think it's when people get on that kind of crouched up position and really dug in and somebody tries to tell them why they're wrong, they're only going to get more dug in no, I think, of who's I think that's them. part of it. And, and you, you, see, you see Leader McConnell getting aggressive sure. uh, run, using, using campaign cash to run ads. Um, I think the legislature, though, is, you know, they're hamstrung by resources. Uh, there's, you know, they can write an op-ed for the local paper. That's about the extent of what they can do unless they're being empowered by a larger entity, uh, most likely the the state of Kentucky and the executive branch to to p- supply them with a megaphone yeah, to we, transmit a message that would we've help. We've got COVID funds. Yeah. We've got COVID funds, but let's be honest. That's what, that's what we're doing now. Yeah, that, the legislature, that was a lot of what they did. Yeah. And some of those bills was to, was to spend money on, on PR efforts. 
here's the thing, though. I, I'm going to be frank with you, and this is me putting my opinion hat on, less than a, a <laughs> reporter hat. I don't think it's going to do anything. I don't think. I don't think. Well, I think you have a bulk of people, and 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 remember, you know, the RNC just had a video out the other day that I thought was was striking, that that served as a reminder of the skepticism from Kamala Harris, Joe Biden. Andrew Cuomo, other major Democrats saying, I'm not going to, you shouldn't trust this Trump vaccine. I wouldn't take that thing. And then the minute they get in the office, it's go get vaccinated. So the message has been, the vaccine itself has been diluted so much through politics that you've got people who, they just, I, I, don't, I don't know that there's anything you can do to convince them. I do think that there's, I, you know, the, the Biden mandate, vaccine mandate is just wrong. It's, it's not... It's not going to hold up in court. It's not going to be legal. You know, people point to, to older court cases, especially during smallpox yeah. uh, and other pandemics. Th those were all based on state laws. I, I do think that what's going to end up changing it, and I think you and I had discussion off air, uh, and, and you saw Delta is the first airline, the uh, first company I've seen do it. Delta put a $200 a month surcharge on your health insurance if you're an employee and you're not vaccinated. They had uh, almost 9,000 employees get vaccinated in that first month. And what's going to happen is going to come from the insurance companies. The insurance companies are going to treat COVID the same way they treat smoking, where if your group policy from your employer, if you have over 10% of your group members are unvaccinated, they're going to stick a surcharge on your, on your policy and your employer is going to say, I'm not paying that. Yeah. And I'm not going to pass the, the fee, the increased rate along to people who've done the right thing. So you 10% who are unvaccinated, you know, 15, whatever percent that are unvaccinated, either get vaccinated or get out the door because we're not, not it, nobody else is going to be punished financially for your poor decision making. So I think it's the insurance companies that yeah. eventually will end up having the biggest stick to swing on it, and that'll that'll make the biggest change. Which is interesting, as a free market, essentially speaking, and saying that you know we want to incentivize, uh, you know, I might spend spend more of my dollars with Delta to fly Delta to know that every time I get on a Delta flight, I'm going to be more. Well, I don't think it's going to be that. I think it's going to be more from the employers because mm -hmm. the employers dealing with two things. One, it's an average for the, for the initial hospital mm -hmm. stay. If you're hospitalized with COVID, it's anywhere from a fifty to seventy thousand dollar bill. Sure. And then we don't even know the long term health ramifications. So you could be talking, you know, another fifty thousand dollars every year for the rest of your life. We don't know. But you, and then you also have the loss of productivity for an employer when your employee who did not take an easy step, which is to get a shot in their arm, uh, is now gonna lose 10, 15, 20, 30 days of, right. of productivity because of, of a personal decision they made. If I'm an employer, uh, you know, why do, I, why do I wanna keep that person on the payroll when I can go hire somebody who, who did make that choice, mm -hmm. who can do that job, uh, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna suffer uh, an increase in my insurance rates, and I'm not gonna suffer that loss of productivity. I think. You know, from a free market standpoint, it's going to, going to be from the employer standpoint that that's going to that's going to force the vaccination issue. And that makes sense. And I think we'll capture uh, folks that way if other, uh, you know, other insurance companies, other employers take suit. Uh, however, Trey, I, you know, we are in a different time, right? Like we have this conversation every now and again about like I'll get asked occasionally, like, what does this mean? Is this a survivable moment for this person? Blah blah blah. Like, I don't know. Trump got elected. <laughs> right? like, uh, he, he survived every unsurvivable moment in modern political history. Yes. He should not have won that election based on everything that happened. He did, though. And so we're in this phase, at least uh, those of us that, that watch these things closely, of like, what, what matters now, right? And I think on that, on that point, can you convince someone who's been through, and let's face it, like for, for a lot of people, COVID and being trapped in their homes and like a lot of people just didn't even leave their homes uh, and you know even until the, the lockdowns ended 
we're in a state of mental health crises. And for those people that now are untrusting of government or untrusting of, you know, we had the Q movement. We had an insurrection against the, you know, we had people storm the, the United States Capitol. This weekend, we have no idea what's going to happen. Right. So all these things are, are going on. Can we really talk sense? And it's certainly not going to be saying, well, you idiot, you need to go do this. But can we ever have this discussion, even if it's mandated by, we're not even a mandate, even if it's, you know, uh, like smoking, that you're going to cost, you're going to pay more in uh, health insurance. You know, are we ever going to be able to get around that? Yes, yeah, some, some of these people, I mean, and I, I wonder half jokingly, but half serious, if you, you don't need to attempt to fight misinformation with misinformation and just tell some of these people, hey, no, this is a huge Democrat plot to win elections. Their hope is to kill off Republican voters. So stop those Democrats and get the vaccine. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I don't know what story you sell to some of these people to get it done. I just. But here, we don't even need to go to a fake news piece, right? Like, well, what do we know? We know that the Chinese and the Russians have incentive to see us fight one another in the United States. We know that they've seeded misinformation since the 1990s about vaccines, not COVID vaccines, vaccines writ large, Yeah, uh, are propaganda campaigns that originated in foreign nations to ensure that you know, America wasn't a cohesive unit and that our populace was suffering so that you know they, they take advantage of, of uh, basically our, our greatest, our, you know, like a, Compare us to China, right? What do we have that China doesn't have? We've got freedom of information. But that's also a great portal in to spread misinformation and have us out there in the streets yelling at one another uh, versus China, which can just say, well, there is the only, there's yeah. only one stream of information. It's the information all is well. All, everything is good. Exactly. Is good. Like They're ba- not. Baghdad Bob. Exactly. They don't have the, <laughs> but they don't have the problems that we have right now, right? So... Uh, well, that we know of, because it can't, can't be reported, because of lack of information. That's, that's true. That is true. But you're not going to have people out in the streets yelling at each other about whether or not they should wear a mask or whether or not they should get a vaccine. Yeah. I, it, I mean, uh, I don't have an answer, man. Like, it's, you know, we're, we're a divided public, and we've had a collapse in trust of institutions at all levels from both parties. You know, Democrats trust government about as much as Republicans trust government. You know, it... it, it and it's not just government institutions. It's lack of trust in the media, lack of trust in in, in medicine and doctors and hospitals. It's lack of you know. It's, it's a lack of trust in institutions in general. The I, the concept of institutions. So it's interesting. You know, I I, I, I was interviewed by a reporter about a month or so ago uh, as asking that's if this is the most divided time in American history. So well, you know, we're not actively at war with each other, so right. probably not. Yeah. But you know, I think that the biggest issue now between other times of division is is like said both availability of information but also the way that that information especially data is collected and can be manipulated you know we know in campaigns uh we can target specific zip codes we can target uh ip we can target down to ip addresses i can make sure wherever nick storm goes in the world he's going to get the ad that i want to see because i'm buying his ip address and, uh, you know, so the way that information is delivered to us even is lends itself towards division and towards whatever message that is. And, and frankly, uh, there's there's money to be made in some people's eyes in in dissolving trust in institutions. And that's kind of where where we wound up at. But, you know, I'll, I'll say this, Nick, 
We're not going to solve this, me and you sitting here in a bourbon. So let's, let's, I know you got some political well, stuff on the, on the docket here. I mean, I hope spring's eternal. You never, you never know. <laughs> just keep drinking and maybe we'll get there, at least for ourselves. And maybe, maybe the solution is just unplug entirely. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm on Zillow every day looking for cabins in the woods. like it. All right. Well, <laughs> um, I do want to talk okay, to you about... I got to manifest it right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about elected, uh, or elections coming up. We've got three special elections. Uh, Trey, what are you watching for in these elections? Um, probably just percentages would be the only thing, because I think Republicans will, will win all of them pretty handily just based on where they're at. Well, these are all Republican yeah. uh, districts. Uh, we got two deaths. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Representative Van Carney, Senator Tom Buford. And, uh, and one, one seat that thankfully is not due to a death, but is due to yikes. stupidity, which yikes. could have caused a death. Yes, so the... Uh, not yet settled court case of uh, yes. former representative Robert Goforth. Uh, uh, but, you know, all three of those, I think the Goforth district is like, it's like, I think it was like 84% Trump, something insane like that. Yeah. Might even been higher. Uh, the Bam, heavily, heavily. The Ban Carney district, if I had to bet, is probably about 70% Trump or so. And, the, and so just, that's Taylor and Adair County. Yeah, and Jessamine County is uh, the, the state senate district, uh, former Senator Buford, uh, is going to be. I think it might have one or two precincts in Fayette, but it's it's all of Jessamine, um, what Washington, Boyle, and Garrett, uh, and that that should go Republicans. I mean, I don't think there's a sh- much of a shot of Democrats winning either of those three seats. So, if you want to look for anything, it, it might be margins. Um, but you know, so here's here's what's interesting, uh, and and you being uh, on the consulting side of politics and on the RPK side of things. Uh, It'd be great to see some message testing here, but the messages don't matter in special elections nope. because there's such a truncated uh, form of election. It's all about turnout. It's all about get out the vote. Um, so can you take away, you're saying you're looking at percentages, but why are you looking at percentages? Break, looking that, at, break that down. Look at enthusiasm. Yeah. See, you know, because there's, there's an opportunity cost to, to get to get out the vote uh, uh, programs. You know, it's yeah. the... You know, we we look at at voter rolls, and, and you look at four out of four voters, three out of four voters, two out of four voters, one out of four voters. We typically look at you know presidential election cycle, and so there, there's an increased uh, price tag every time you drop down from a four out of four to three out of four. Every time you drop down one lost vote, it, it's it, it it's money to turn that voter out. Right. So the question is, you know, uh, that can be overcome with natural enthusiasm. So are voters enthusiastic about getting out to vote? Uh, which parties of voters are, are enthusiastic about vote? Because th- those are the ones that will be more easily turned out. And especially with three special elections going on where you get to split the money up. Right. Um, you know, but I also don't know. I mean, I don't know where, where, how hard or how the Democrat Party is going to play in these three elections because they are an unwinnable district. So if I'm a Democrat donor, I, I'm like, why are you spending money in this Jackson County seat? We ain't going to win it. We've got real serious elections coming up uh, next year, especially with, with, we don't know what redistricting is gonna, is yeah. gonna cause, what chaos that might, that might bring. So like, if I'm a Democrat, I'm asking myself seriously, the Jessamine County seat, maybe because you're in the, you're in the Lexington media market, uh, you know, right? You're in Lexington. Yeah. You, you could. You could. You've got. You've got that split with Madison, partial Madison County. Yeah. You could. Area. You could do some messaging on that that, mm-hmm. that might serve a broader purpose. The other two seats. It's what. What's your ROI on that? Like, I don't yeah. know why the Democrats would invest money in it other than there's an election we have to. But if I'm a donor, I'm saying put some money in Jessamine County seat. Leave the other ones alone. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Which, which, which then throws into question what do the, the percentage matter at all if one side's not playing? Probably <laughs> not. Probably not. But um, there's, I mean, they're fascinating to watch. It's. Now the the, the, the Bam Carney seat may have some interest because the independent in there. So you might you might want to say like, what is that? How much play does he get? And, you know, and he's investing heavily. You know, he's already got billboards up in both counties. You've already got uh, radio ads for him. He didn't even lag in the the wait to, to start putting things up. I think there's probably an open question here of whether or not he uh, he wanted to be the Republican nominee and didn't get the nomination or got irritated before the nominating process and switched parties. So you know, he might be vulnerable. But, you know, at the end of the day, maybe maybe that's – Maybe that's a storyline to watch. Is it, as we sort of message test uh, Trumpism uh, against establishment, uh, you know, races? Uh, the Buford seat, I think, will be interesting too. You sort of you do have that uh, geographic split. Um, I, I, it's not enough geography, I don't think, to overcome the the, the you know the voting patterns. But I mean, let's not forget that um, this is off cycle. Right, like who's going to actually show up and vote? And are people going to even know that there's an election happening yeah. in their backyard and get themselves to the polls on November second? Well, I, I think you know, a Republicans have the vast advantage on resources to make that to get that message out. But B, I, I think that that district, you know, do they care? Yeah, there's well, a ton of Republicans in office right now, Trey. I, I can tell you, the people, the people in the state senate are very competitive, and they yes. don't want to lose a seat. They will, they will invest to make sure that that doesn't happen. So fair enough. There's what thirty, well, previous to Buford's passing, there were thirty uh, Republicans. I think in eight. Is it thirty or something like that? I, don't, I thought it was twenty nine, but I. Well, I think it's twenty nine now. Okay, with, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Buford's passing. Because um, I don't think I think there's only eight. Ah, you get so many, you lose track. It's that is true. It's like it's like kids. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I know you you got that problem. Dude. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. <laughs> you've been to a lot of national conventions. You know? <laughs> get out of here. No. Um, all right, so Kevin Wheatley. So the, <laughs> I have him on it sometime. I'll put you on, on the <laughs> feed you guys questions. Um, so. <laughs> I'm telling you what, it's it's a good thing I've not had more bourbon right now. I actually follow this conversation. I remind myself for So, jeez, Trey. Open open seats. The 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 other thing that I think is interesting coming up in 2022 is that we're going to have all of the House seats up for re-election. We'll have even numbered, and then out of the some of these seats, we're going to have quite a few open seat elections as we likely go through redistricting. So it's setting up a lot of sort of uh, fascinating storylines. Uh, obviously, uh, lawmakers are going to have to return next year and pass a budget. They're going to have to pass new legislative maps because I don't think they're coming back to pass and, and, you know, and I think that's a serious political mistake on Andy Bashir's part. He has something that the, the, that the Republicans legislature want, which is a special session yeah. to pass legislative maps so that A, uh, they don't have to move the filing deadline back because right. the filing deadline is early January now. So they're they're, mm -hmm. they're going to have to pass legislation to move the filing deadline back because you can't file for a map that you that, that you don't know what the map is because you may not even yeah. live in the district you filed in. So they're going to have to move the filing deadline back. Um, it costs Andy Bashir nothing. Anything that he tries to do, anything he tries to veto is going to get overridden. So it literally costs him nothing 
and he could maybe extract a trade or a promise or, or some nicety out of the legislature in exchange for calling that special session. So it's, it boggles my mind and shows that Andy Bashir's got nobody giving him good political advice that he wouldn't try to work a deal to, to call a special session for the, for the, for the mat. Maybe he watches this and he's going he's gonna yeah, to do some more go. trading. I, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of time. I don't think Republicans have maps ready yet, right? I no, mean, I know they're that probably they're... Probably at the end of the year. I know they're working on them. I mean, they just got the numbers less than a month ago. I think oh, they, I know. I think yeah. they had numbers on August 18th, the last month. Right. We, so. knew, we knew the big, broad changes. We didn't know the precinct-level changes. Yeah. And so... You have to start inputting that precinct. And just to remind you, they, they've now congressionally they have to be one to one. Every district has to be exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, but legislatively, you've got a plus minus of a five vote differential from whatever five, number yeah, yeah, the so, ideal district is. Yeah, five percent. Yeah, yeah, so you know, there's they have room to play. I, I would bet that there's at least a pretty rough idea of what they want to do. You know, there's a couple of the state senate's gotten a little bit of help because there's been some some retirements, which allows right. them to. Because I mean, you know, every time you move something, it it's you have to something yeah else. something else yeah. adjusts. So so you've got Hornback that's retiring. You've got Senator Wise that's uh, retiring. No, so Senator the, Senator Kerr. Uh, Senator you Kerr. said Wise. Uh, uh, Will Schroeder. Exactly. You've got the open seat, uh, uh, Buford seat that could likely change. So you've got some. And then CB Embry, I, you know, CB's health is not yeah. great. He's not officially announced he's not running again. But I, I would. He, yeah, he didn't show up for the session. He uh, he's not announced that he's not running. No, again, he but. he's you know thoughts and prayers with CB Embry. Yeah. Uh, you know, I hope hope I hope for recovery. But you know, that's I, I would have to assume that would likely become an open seed. Right. Right. So you've been and, and that gives you some geographic balance even on where open seats are to where you can. Move, move, move things around and, and maneuver mm-hmm. uh, to... But what's interesting is that, and I'm not had a chance to look at all of the data, but I think rural counties lost. Oh, by, by large sums. I mean, the, the seats are going to flow, and they're not going to be urban seats either. Right. Uh, they're, they're going to be seats that are Louisville seats more anchored in Oldham, Shelby, Spencer counties. It's going to be Lexington seats more anchored in Jessamine, Scott, and Woodford. Um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be suburban seats. I think people, uh, I've heard some Democrats think that, you know, the, they could create some seats maybe that they could, they, they have more of a time to play in. Yeah. That's possible. But at the same time, it's going to be suburban seats where, um, at least pre-Trump, uh, was going to be fertile ground for, for Republicans. It's going to be, you know, can you get the right candidate that can run with, uh, that suburb, you know, the message that gets the, the, the soccer moms back on board. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, I think that. It's going to create uh, an opportunity to grow some, to, to write some maps that that'll, that'll be good for us. Um, and at the same time, you know, I don't think that we have to do what Democrats have had to do the last two map drawings, which is draw draw seats defensively to protect people, because right. the state's gone so red. Um, you know, we're seventy five members. I, if you wanted to get really punitive, I could draw you a map that could probably get us up to, to eighty or eighty five. But, yeah, but do you, you want, want that? To. No, you can't, contr- you yeah, can't I mean, control. You can't control the caucus. That problem is controlling the yeah. caucus as it is. So I mean, you know, hell, I, yeah, I hate to hate to sound hate, hate to say something that would get me in trouble, but we could even do by shedding a couple, like because the, the caucus is just so big. As long as we're as long as we're above seventy, because yeah. sixty votes is 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 super majority. Uh-huh. So as long you know, seventy gives us ten votes we can lose on any on any given election. So as long as we're in that sweet spot between where yeah. we're at at seventy five and seventy, you know, we can move the maps around and be magnanimous about it. So let me ask you this: given what happened during special session, given what's happened in recent uh, legislative sessions, do Republicans in the Senate? find a new district for Adrian South 
Worth. Uh, and Representative Savannah Maddox and maybe a couple other people over in the House. I think Savannah Maddox's seat, it's, the House is a lot harder to district somebody out. It is. Um, There's only so many ways you can craft a Senate this week, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's one other way, which is you just shift the number, and the Senate district you currently represent ends up in Fulton County. Yeah. You know, I, I, have, I, I will preface this by saying I have no inside information on any anything of that nature, and I would seriously doubt that they would do something like that to, to their own caucus. What, what, I don't what, know. What, what, I don't know. Would I do it if I was drawing the map? <laughs> <laughs> so, but on, but on this point, though, Trey, I, so... There's a handful for Republicans, establishment Republicans, that believe a certain set of uh, you know, policy-based ideas. There's some other people in the Republican Party that are also Republicans, big big tent party that have sort of been a poison pill in their in their process, either via redistricting or out and out. Rec- candidate recruitment at what point does the republican party start to take some action here and decide who republicans are at least republicans that are in control well i would say this i think especially in the house uh leadership there has a has a much stronger belief in the you get more flies with honey philosophy of leadership so i I would definitely in the house not see any appetite among leadership to 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 get punitive like that and use redistricting as a as, as a as a hammer um the senate I would also kind of lean that direction. There's, you know, there's been times in the past where I've urged other people have urged the Senate to get involved in primaries, and you know, especially President Stivers has always had a hands-off philosophy. Uh, I will say this though: I was at something with Leader McConnell uh, a month or so ago, and and somebody asked him about, uh, you know, elections in 22, and and about the uh, involvement of 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 Senate leadership in primaries, and and he pointed it. He said, you know, let me draw your attention to 2010 and remind you of four names, Aiken, O'Donnell, uh, Murdoch, and Engel. The one thing those four people have in common is they're, no, they're not in the U.S. Senate. You know, so I think the, the U, U.S. Senate, Republicans of the Senate had a wake-up call in 2010 when they got beat by a bunch of these Tea Party people. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't know that, that we're there yet in the, in the state Senate level. Um, I know that there's, you know, there's some people out there outside of the caucus that, would have an appetite for engaging in in some stuff like that. You know, I certainly, you know, have an eye on helping where I can to make sure we get people who I'm I, I'm more ideologically aligned with. Because the the place where you do have these fights is in primaries. Sure. You know, it's not appropriate to me to have these fights in a general election and potentially elect somebody who I'd rather elect somebody who I'm, I'm going to agree with seventy percent of the time than somebody I'm I'm going to agree with twenty percent of the time. Well, is but that not the point of having a primary? It is. It is. And but you know, like I said that. You also have to maintain caucus unity, and even if you don't agree with the positions of somebody who might be getting beat up in a primary, uh, you know, you, you always kind of sit back and say, well, what if I get crossways? Am I going to be next? And so there's, you know, there's membership management uh, concerns there, and both in the Senate and the House, they've, they've taken the more hands-off process uh, 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 with, with, with nominations. Of course, this, this process was one pre, what, 2015? Right, like when, well, I mean, when Republicans for the longest time should have been taking the house and the, uh, you know, taking the house and and weren't able to get over that. Well, it's, it's, it's twenty. I mean, the difference in twenty sixteen was recruitment. Now, and I and I'll one hundred percent give that to Jonathan Shell. Jonathan yeah. Shell, for the first time, Republicans stopped recruiting resumes and started recruiting people who would work. You know, Republicans f- got beat on filing day. Yeah, 
Like, Republicans didn't get beat at the ballot. Well, even beyond, even in, even in places where we we believed we had a good candidate, it turned out that yeah. candidate he made they made it good on paper, but they wouldn't work. They wouldn't knock the doors. They wouldn't make the calls to raise the money. And in 2016, Shell said, you know, I, I'm uh, throw the resumes out. I'm going to go out and find somebody who's got who's got a resume that I can work with. But I'd take I'll take the the small business owner who's going to bust their hump, knocking the doors and, and making calls over the chamber of commerce president. Who thinks he's gonna like be handed stuff? Right, and right. that was the big difference in '16. Uh, was was just purely the type of candidate that they targeted for recruitment. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that uh, you know the Adrian Southworth primary that was a that was a four-way primary. There was a lot of people involved in it, and the, nobody really got involved on it. I think the one that will be interesting to watch is the one in Lexington because mm-hmm. uh, I think you know you have Andrew Cooper Ryder who's uh, coffee shop owner who sued the governor and then tried to impeach the governor right. and you know he's involved with uh some some people that, that run manage outside groups you know, so I, I do suspect there'll be outside money involved in that one and there's going to be a decision force that if 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 the main more mainstream republicans want to have a say in it they're going to have to to get involved because the other side's going to get involved i think that's interesting right so this is the uh alice Forgy courtesy yeah. there's three republicans at this and by the point. way it's my district it's it's right, where right. i live so, so you've got uh what amanda Mays Bledsoe, yes. you've got Cooper Ryder, and you've got Ross Mann. Yeah. I think all looking at for, from the Republican side, all saying that they're running for this seat. And then on the uh, Democratic side, um, you've got uh, Paula Sester- Yeah, the, the ran last City. time against yeah, Kerr. Yeah, ran last time against Kerr in, I think it was 18? Yeah. Uh, and she got within 800 votes of, of Kerr, who was there for decades. So, uh, you know, she's... You know, it'll be interesting to see and that how elect- that district is, is sort of and That election is hard thinking. to use those numbers. Anything from 18 in Fayette County is going to become somewhat slanted because Amy McGrath spent like $10 million in Fayette County on turnout. Right. And that won't, that right. won't be there. That won't be there this next election. So, I mean, if you were a Democrat, you had to win in 18 or you're probably not going to get close in some of these other races. Oh, I mean, this is a solid R district or, or leans are district I i'd say know. i'd say leans are i mean yeah. the right democrat could win it i don't think that this woman she's a little bit left of where the district would would i think would be able to stomach yeah um yeah and that's what because that's what made alice kerr acceptable and and, and mm-hmm. why she was able to hang on is she she took some fairly contrarian positions she, she, she voted did. against the 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 pension reform stuff for the teachers mm-hmm. she voted pro uh lgbt rights uh, it, it's like a, julie rocky adams over in Louisville, yeah right i mean she's She's a Republican in a major metro area uh, that that has more urban ideals. And this is one of the, our biggest problems in the party is we put these litmus tests on candidates. And you know, I've always said I, I'll, I'd rather have the Republican. The one vote that matters to me most is the vote they make, the very first vote they make, which is who's who's going to be in leadership. And you know, I'll take a. I I personally believe there's a Republican that can win every district in the state. We could have 100 seats if we wanted. If we if we were able to recruit, identify and recruit that candidate that lives in that district who whose whose views fit it. In some districts, you're going to go out with a with you know with with the Bible and campaign on abortion and 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 you know singing singing to the choir. And some districts, you're going to go out and say this is not about red or blue. This is about green. This is about paychecks. This is about the money in your pocket. You know, so it's it's about 
being flexible as a candidate, being flexible as a consultant, the people that run the races, mm -hmm. and uh, being flexible as a party to understand if you want to win this race, you're going to have to have somebody who may not agree with you on every single position. So I suppose even though that turnout is there, I think one thing that will be interesting to see is how much damage do uh, Republicans do to one another in a, in a primary, right? In a three-way primary, you've got uh, some very far-right ideas, and you're going to have uh, I think um, Mann's stated he's going to put $50,000 of his own money in the campaign, and uh, you know, Bledsoe obviously has a city council district, which probably not a lot of people know if she's even a Republican, uh, <laughs> which would be kind of interesting when her name appears on the ballot. Uh, so, you know, uh, the, the percentages here could, could potentially shift uh, in November 22 based on who, who uh, wins the nomination. I think it's... I think it's a Republican district, but it's, I think it's a center-right district. Yeah. So I think that shapes up advantage Bledsoe, but, you know, it's, it's about how the messaging battle plays out because nothing's real until you put it on TV, Nick. And then... <laughs> so, That's so, so bizarre, though. you got to put points behind it for, yep. for it to matter. Yep. All right, well, let's put some points behind this one, Trey. <laughs> thanks for coming. Thanks, thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks for listening to Bourbon and Birds by Kentucky Fried Politics. Make sure you're following all of the Frankfurt gossip on KentuckyFried.com. <laughs>